welcome back to How To with the Communications Clinic. We're delighted to be back with a brand new series and we have some fantastic guests to come over the next few months. In the first episode of this series, we're looking at how to be a trusted advisor and we couldn't have anyone more experienced in this area joining us. Charlie Green is an author, consultant and speaker. He's perhaps best known for co-authoring the classic, The Trusted Advisor, though he also authored Trust-Based Selling and co-authored The Trusted Advisor Field Book. Before founding Trusted Advisor Associates in 2001 and shifting his career to focus on trust in business, Charlie spent 20 years in management consulting. He has recently retired, but we're so thrilled that he has taken the time to join us. Charlie, you are very welcome to the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Well, we're so excited to talk to you and to hear the the lessons you have to, to share with us around trust. So you write about trust. Can you give me an overview of your understanding of trust? Well, I think, uh, you know, we use that word in lots of different ways in common language. I think maybe the big two are interpersonal trust. I trust you, you trust me, that kind of thing. And then we also use that word to describe institutional trust. You know, I trust the court system. I trust the, uh, the United Nations. I trust Amazon. I trust Google, that kind of thing. Of the two, interpersonal trust is probably the stronger. And in any case, that's the one that I've spent my career focusing on. So interpersonal trust, we understand the importance of that interpersonal trust in a personal relationship. And it's really imperative to the success of a personal relationship, be it, you know, in love or in family or in friendship. How important is trust in a business relationship then, one-to-one? Oh, I think it's huge. Um, You know, anybody listening to this, just ask yourself, how comfortable would I be doing certain business deals completely online with some automated, uh, you know, uh, algorithmic bot versus meeting somebody? And uh, sometimes we are. I mean, sometimes sometimes we're happy to just have an automated buying process, but for larger intangible services, for example, I work mostly with professional services like accounting firms, consulting firms, PR firms. Um, uh, you, you want to know who you're dealing with and, and people are people. We don't turn off our humanity when we, uh, you know, put on a brand name or walk through a door. Uh, I think all of us are uh, operating as human beings all the time and you instinctively unconsciously start forming impressions about trust from the get-go. So it's extremely important. It makes a big difference. And you have a formula. You've created a formula for trust. Can you outline that for me, Charlie? Sure. It's actually for trustworthiness. If you think about trust, there's a, it's kind of a bilateral relationship. One person trusts the other, and the other person proves themselves to be trustworthy or not. So the formula for trustworthiness, we've expressed it as kind of a mathematical equation just to make it simple to understand. It's credibility plus reliability plus intimacy, all divided by what we call self-orientation. Credibility has a lot to do with expertise and credentials, like do they know what they're talking about? You know, are they vetted, checked out? Reliability, pretty obvious too. You know, do they do what they say they're going to do? Do they have a good track record? Um, Those two are kind of rational components. You can think about data and behaviors. The other two are very different. Intimacy, the third one in the numerator, really has to do with a sense of safety. Like, do I feel, you know, okay, safe talking to this person about certain things? Uh, and, uh, you know, are, are they paying attention to me? Do they, you know, notice who I am? Do they give some indication that they, you know, respect me, care about me, that kind of thing? Self-orientation, the factor in the denominator, 
has to do with who are they paying attention to? Um, in its crudest form, it's selfishness. That's not actually hard to spot. You can kind of, you know, pick out people that are behaving selfishly. But much more common, people who are sort of neurotically self-obsessed all the time, always worrying, you know, am I going to get the sale? Are they going to like me? How come everybody's looking at me? How come nobody's looking at me? These things take away from our ability to focus on other people and pay attention to them, um, which, again, goes back to things as basic as respect. If we don't feel respected by somebody, we in turn don't respect them. Our hackles go up. We become suspicious. We don't trust them. So those are the four factors. Again, credibility plus reliability plus intimacy divided by self-orientation. So if we can break it down then and starting with those rational aspects of that formula, um, let's take credibility first and foremost, very measurable. You can be certified. How can you enhance your credibility in business? Well, you can, you know, you get degrees, you can get certification. Uh, you can engage with people. You can send out, you know, white papers to them or examples of, you know, work that you've done. Referrals, references, I think, fall into that category. Um, in the in the kinds of businesses that I deal with, like I said, professional services, um, you kind of lead on your website or your initial emailing. You certainly let people know you've written books, you graduated from this institution, you have this kind of certification or degree. And when you start talking with people, you make it a point to indicate, you know, directly or indirectly that you know a few things about this particular subject. And so it comes up in conversation. Um, reliability uh, is one of the easiest ones to create trust with. Just make a lot of promises and keep them. Um, even even simple little ones like this meeting will end at three o'clock and end it at 2.59 and cover the agenda that you said you would cover. Um that's like I said, that's one of the easiest ways to do it. Although it's interesting, it's it's easy to screw that up too. You hear a lot of people say things like under promise and over deliver. Um, that, if you think about it, that's a deliberate lie that is saying to people, uh, I'm going to under promise and I'm going to, you know, less than uh, what I actually intend to do. And then I'm going to over deliver more than what I told you I would do. Do that three, four, five times in a row and people get you know, wise to it pretty quickly and they start, you know, shading their own estimates of what you're going to do. You destroy your credibility by behaving that way. What happens then, Charlie, if you have to revoke a promise? Does that completely undermine your trustworthiness? No, the opposite, interestingly enough. First of all, that happens and we all know that things change and you have to, you know, do something different. Uh, If you do two things, number one, admit it as quickly as possible. And number two, take responsibility for whatever role you had in in that revocation. Uh, It may have been largely your fault. It may not have been largely your fault. The key is to say this part I was responsible for, and I'm sorry about that. Um, So it's if you do those two things, if you admit, you know, that things have changed and you've got to change your promise. If you do that quickly, you gain points for transparency, for willingness to, you know, be open and honest. And it's actually, uh, uh, for example, in in the area of customer service, you get credit, you get stronger relationships for recovery from some kind of difficulty than if you never had a problem in the first place. So it's not deadly at all. Charlie, credibility and reliability, as we've discussed, can be largely measured and and that's accessed by data, track records, certifications and some points. Now, intimacy, as you mentioned, on the other hand, is, is quite an emotional component. So how do we increase this in a business relationship? 
Well, um, it's, it's a rich topic. Uh, you're right. It is. It goes to us as human beings, and we pick up, you know, mostly subconsciously on all kinds of, of factors, and we notice people's, uh, you know, eye movements and intonation and, and body language and all that stuff. And, and uh, just to make it more complicated, it's always unique because it's who the two people are and what are, what's the chemistry of their interactions. So ways to fix that, I, I think there are two. One of them has to do with that self-orientation notion. If you're really paying attention to the other person, that amounts to a form of respect as opposed to, you know, running through a set list of questions and just, you know, checking off the boxes that you have. If you really hang on what other people are saying, look them in the eye and emotionally be interested in what they're talking about. We perceive that as an act of respect. And guess what? One of the key drivers between human beings is we tend to reciprocate. If somebody doesn't like us, we don't like them. If somebody's aggressive towards us, we get aggressive and defensive towards them. But if somebody shows us respect by listening, being curious about who we are, where we're coming from, we very naturally tend to reciprocate. So that's number one. Lower your self-orientation. Stop worrying about yourself. Get curious and focus on the other person. Um, I think that's <clears throat> probably the, and, and that comes up mainly in listening. Uh, we think of listening uh, as, you know, a, a matter of open questions versus closed questions. The, the biggest uh, part of listening to create trust is really listening to pay attention, to share your attention, focus on the other person. The other dimension is time frame. People are always suspicious of other people in a sales world. I mean, the word sell has a very negative connotation in Western culture in general. But if you are willing to approach sales from a long-term perspective, then in the short term, and the short term may be a month, a week, a day, a minute, if you're willing to defer gratification and explore what's right for this person, uh, that ends up creating a great deal of trust. The ultimate manifestation of that is, would you be willing to recommend a competitor if that's the right thing to do for the person you're talking to? Uh, and, and, and it turns out, I mean, I have a couple of fascinating stories from clients in the past who've actually done that. It creates enormous loyalty if you're actually willing to do that because it says in, in, in the most tangible kind of way possible, Wow, this person actually does have my self-interest, my best interest at heart. Guess who I'm going to when I need what they have to sell? I'm going to that person. Can you tell me one of those stories then, just in terms of an example of how that has been effective for a client? Sure. There was a um, years ago. I worked for a consulting firm. The head of our financial services practice, a guy named Howard Schwartz. Uh, Howard was familiar with the head of the financial services practice of McKinsey, the big consulting firm. And one day he got a call from that guy and, and he said, Howard, we've had a problem with one of our bigger banking clients in New York. We started an important project for them and things just went wrong, bad chemistry, et cetera. We started it again and again, things went wrong. I cannot go back a third time. So I'm wondering if you, my direct competitor, would be willing to come in and do this important work at this key client for us. Well, Howard had never heard anything like that before, but he said, sure, we'll do it. So he met with the client, brought in a team of good people, did some great work over a couple of months, and at the end went to the client and said, now you've seen us, now you've seen our people, the quality of work we can do. Um, could we talk about you know, other areas of work? And the client said, Howard, your team is great. You were great. We really appreciate it. I know the circumstances you came in here. Great work. Thank you so much. But we would never leave McKinsey because they were big enough to bring you in. Wow. 
That is, that's amazing, isn't it? So in terms of, you know, that self-orientation, it's about being selfless as much as possible. And, and that's a key example you've given me there. Can I be a little cynical then and suggest that in business relationships, you know, that in a business transaction, you know, that example aside, do we ever really believe that the other party isn't in it for themselves, that they, you know, they're not trying to get the deal or trying to get your business? That's where this. That's where the time frame comes in. Um, I forget the gentleman's name, but one of the former managing partners of Goldman Sachs had a concept that he called long-term selfish. And what he meant by that was we should always serve our clients' best interests. And if we do that, they're going to disproportionately come to us. We will make out better in the long term by continually putting you know clients' best interests at heart in the short term. Uh, and I think he's absolutely right. I mean, one of the, uh, the paradoxes is if you actually do a better job of serving clients' needs, paying attention to them, focusing on them instead of your own quarterly, monthly metrics, who are you going to buy from? That's exactly who you want to buy from, somebody who does that, right? And therefore, just think it through, if somebody who behaves that way is going to get more business than somebody who is trying to pull all the little sales metrics and tweak everything to get this particular deal or that particular deal. There's a There's a kind of misunderstanding in the sales world. Uh, they tend to be very short-term driven, metrics driven, um, uh, because that's, you know, they get measured that way. And they think, well, the way to make more money is to meet all my metrics and my goals. Actually, no. What that says to their clients is, oh, I see. You're behaving to meet your short-term metrics. You're operating in your interest, not mine. Uh, as opposed to a competitor who clear, clearly focuses on the long-term behaviors, which should be client-oriented, that's actually more attractive to clients. So there's a bit of a paradox. If you give up the sale, the deal, as being your objective, and rather let it be a byproduct, an outcome, you actually end up selling more. And and tell me, you know, given that intimacy and self-orientation are intuitive, you know, will somebody who's a bad judge of character, and, you know, there are people who just cannot judge a character, are, will they always lose out in the business transaction if they can't measure those intuitive elements of the formula? Um, you know, there's no perfect answer to that. I've come to think, though, I've been doing this for a while now, and I think we all have, or almost all of us, 95% of us have very good instincts, very good gut level reactions. We just have learned not to trust them. And um, we, I think we do a pretty good job. Uh, if, if you meet somebody walking down the street and they look kind of sketchy and they're walking a certain way, you know, we, we, we back off of them. And in meetings or in social groupings, we all recognize people whose behaviors strike us as a little bit odd. And, uh, you know, trust your gut. Uh, first of all, there aren't that many people who really are, are uh, sociopaths in business. They get weeded out fairly early. So let's say it's a matter of 20% or 10%, something like that. Um, we're not that bad at spotting such people. So don't trust those people. But the majority of people, the vast majority, if you trust them, guess what? They tend to reciprocate. One of the best ways to make people trustworthy is to trust them in the first place. And um, uh, so in order to make the trust thing work, you not only have to be trustworthy yourself, you occasionally have to take a risk and trust the other person. Otherwise, we shut down and say, I'm the only one taking the risks here. It doesn't work. A hundred percent. And, you know, the reciprocal nature of the, the relationship is really important to remember as well. Yeah. On that then, so a high self-orientation 
if somebody has a high self-orientation and we recognize that, does that always mean we shouldn't trust the person? So say if there's this hotshot lawyer, uh, they charge top dollar, but I know they're good, but I know they want the deal, they want to do the job, they, but they're in it for themselves, but they have that credibility and reliability. Should, should I not just go with them? Can I not still trust them? Well, I'll give you an even tougher case. Uh, let's say that you have a child and they need a medical operation and you go to the best surgeon who is a total jerk and, you know, disgusting bedside manner. But, oh, my gosh, this clear as a bell that that person is the top surgeon. Well, even I probably go with the top surgeon. Um, but, you know, those are those are life and death things with the child. I mean, that's a tough case. Um, there aren't that many tough cases. And in fact, uh, there was an article, I think about 15 years ago in Harvard Business Review called Lovable Fools versus uh, uh, Competent Jerks. And the question is, you know, when push comes to shove, would you rather take somebody who has good bedside manner, good interpersonal skills, or would you rather take somebody who's brusque, you know, horrible interpersonal skills, but very competent? Most people say, I will take the competent jerk. Thank you. I'll take the competency and I'll manage. But if you look at their behavior, the opposite is true. We use uh, those bedside manners as, as gating factors. We don't even want to deal with them. So we don't get to the point of assessing their competency. Again, this, is, this, this kind of behavior is deep-seated and uh, it's tempting to say, well, in this modern day and age of data and, and, and artificial intelligence, we should be able to screen for that. No, we're a long ways away from being replaced by databases. This is still how people operate and, and I think will continue to be for, you know, many lifetimes yet. Okay. Now sales is, is we've mentioned it and we've talked about, you know, it's, it's not always met with um, the most positive connotations and it's often viewed with skepticism. So how does somebody in a sales position increase their trustworthiness? You know, can you actually give me some techniques for them to do so? Yeah, uh, the, the biggest one, I, I don't know if you call it a technique or not, it's that thing that I mentioned before, to really believe deeply and come to, you know, just have no question about it, that if you behave in a client-focused, client-centric way, as opposed to a seller-centric way, you will do better as a salesperson. And again, there are lots of mitigating factors that make that hard to believe, but that's, that's the biggest one. Another one is truth-telling. Um, there's a little technique we call name it and claim it. This has to do with issues that uh, everybody kind of in the room knows about, but nobody's raising because it's embarrassing or difficult, whatever. Uh, if you can be that truth teller, if you can be the one that articulates, you know, the emperor has no clothes or the elephant in the room, whatever metaphor you want, that immediately says, oh, wow, that person, you know, they, they were not afraid of raising the truth. And, and of course, they were right. Thank you for doing that, by the way. Hmm, I sort of trust that person. That's that's one technique. Um Another one, and it goes back to risk-taking uh, by, by trusting other people, Instead, oftentimes, particularly in, in uh, intangible businesses uh, like the ones I mostly deal with, people will send out a white paper, a research paper. You know, here's a great piece of work that we did. Well, most organizations that do that make sure that that work really is good, that it's bulletproof, that there's no argument whatsoever. Well, unfortunately, if there's no argument whatsoever, you send it out to someone and they immediately say, yeah, there's a catch here somewhere. I just don't know where it is. However, if you send out something that says, look, we could be wrong about this. You know, you know more than we do. 
uh, and we could be wrong, but we've seen a few things like this, you know, and, you know, it's possible. What do you think about this hypothesis? Even if you're wrong, people will say, wow, that's going out on a limb. They took a risk. You know, that was a smart hypothesis. Wrong, but it was smart. It was educated. And it tells me they're willing to take a risk. That's who I want to work with, that kind of person. So uh, and that, I think, is relevant to lead generation and early, you know, uh, sales relationship development. I call it bring a risky gift. Um, you know, the analogy is uh, when you go to dinner with somebody for the first time, what do you do? You bring a bottle of wine. Uh, so in the States here, you, you pick up a bottle of California Cabernet or something. Totally low risk. On the other hand, if you were to say, hmm. You know, I think they went to Italy last year. Uh, what if we got them a bottle of um, uh, uh, Barolo from Pimonte or something and tied it up with an Italian bow? Well, there's a risk there. Number one, they might be alcoholic. Who knows? Or number two, maybe it was Spain they went to. You know, maybe you got it mixed up. But the truth is, again, people overestimate the negative in the short term. If they are alcoholics, this is hardly the first time they faced it. They'll know exactly how to deal with it. Thank you very much. We don't drink, but we'll save it for our guests. And if it was Spain they went to, you make a joke of it. Geez, you know, I always mix up Spain and Italy, you know. <laughs> and uh, But you get credit for having given the thought and the preparation and thought about the gift for these people. That's a small metaphor. I, I, mean, I know I'm not really saying by wine. Yeah. Yeah, no, but it makes sense. Putting thought into the interaction prior to it. And just to clarify on the name it and claim it, so that would be a situation whereby you're selling a product and say that will work for 95%, but 5% have found that in this particular instance, the product didn't work and being straightforward. Yeah. Or yes, being straightforward. Or, you know, you may wonder why we're even here bidding this to you because we're third in the marketplace and we've only done four of these kinds of jobs. Here's why we're here. And we think we have something. In other words, lead with your weakness instead of pretending it doesn't exist. Put it out there. It says we're not afraid. We're transparent. Any question you ask us, we will be willing to talk about. Okay. And now you had 100,000 takers of the Trust Quotient, a 20-question self-assessment. So do you have headlines from this bulk of research, which is phenomenal? Yeah. Yeah, we do. And by the way, anybody that wants to take that, there's a free version of it. Anybody can take it. It's in the upper right-hand corner of our front page website at trustedadvisor.com. Um, the couple of interesting results, I think, uh, number one, it turns out of those four factors in trustworthiness, the most powerful, according to a regression analysis, was intimacy. Not really what I had expected. If anything, we expected self-orientation would have been strongest because we, that's why we put it kind of in the, in the privileged spot in the denominator. But it was intimacy. And uh, there's some related data that back that up, why that actually makes a lot of sense. For example... Uh, there are surveys done by Gallup, you know, well-respected organizations in many countries uh, in, in the Western world, the most trusted and least trusted professions. And I find doing seminars, everybody gets the bottom one. Who, who do you think shows at the bottom? They always say politicians, lawyers, and car salesmen. And they're right. Those show up at the bottom, least trusted professions. Uh, at the top, people don't as easily guess, but almost all the time uh, in the U.S., it's been for the last 20 years, nursing is the number one most trusted profession. The one exception to that over here was in 2002 when it was firemen. And that was the year, if you recall, after 9-11. But the next year, it went right back to nurses, and it's been nurses ever since. 
uh, interesting too that nursing in the U.S. is 89% female profession, and uh, women tend to score more highly than men. Even men make that guess. They say, yeah, women probably score more highly. And the reason for that is women tend to score much more highly on the intimacy factor, which again is the most powerful factor. So there's a lot of interrelated data that, that suggests it isn't just statistics. It makes some common sense that the most powerful factor driving trustworthiness is, do I feel safe and secure talking with this person? Uh, are they respecting my boundaries? Are they respecting my privacy? Do I feel confident that they're not going to misuse this information? Those are all the kinds of things that go into, into intimacy. And so if you're a male politician, you're falling into that very dangerous territory. You have to use that trust, that trust formula then and really try and increase the intimacy, first and foremost, the credibility and the reliability. Yeah, it's interesting. I, for example, when I work with lawyers, and I, I tell them, I say, look, you guys are probably not surprised by this. You as a profession are at the bottom of the trustworthy list. Let's talk about why. Well, let's look at your scores. And, and sure enough, anytime you get a group of more than 10 or 15 people, these averages show up pretty quickly. Law firms have terrible scores on intimacy. Well, that's the bad news. The good news is if you happen to be good at it, and you can be, you're competing against a, a bunch of incompetence. The rest of the industry is terrible. If, if you're a lawyer and you can develop good intimacy skills, you, know, you, you're, you can mint money because uh, it becomes so much easier to compete against them. The others don't have it. And in fact, it's not hard to do. People can start, you know, increasing their intimacy skills tomorrow, today. Uh, it, it, uh, it just requires, you know, paying attention and thinking through how am I behaving, interacting with other people. And talk to me about communication then in these rela relationships. Can trust be increased via communication in uh, a business relationship? I think it's almost the only way. Because, you know, let's take those two emotional factors, intimacy, low self-orientation. That goes to things uh, like, you know, the safety and do they have my best interests at heart? How are you going to figure that out except by communicating with them? A lot of it's nonverbal, uh, but much of it's verbal, too. Uh, and and it, isn't just, it isn't just the words that we pick. For example, wow is a full sentence. So is, oh, my goodness. It all depends on how you say it. It depends on how you intonate it and, and how you, and it comes from within. You know, are you, if you're clearly listening to someone and you hear what is important to them, it will show through, you know, the intonation stuff. Don't approach it mechanically, behaviorally. Just think, oh my gosh, what if I were in their position and allow yourself to respond as any human being. If you can do that, which really means if you can tap into, you know, caring about another person, if you can empathize, it will communicate. Uh, and if you, um, uh, you know, that, that's how we read it. We read all these things from how other people communicate with us, some of which has to do with word choices, but a lot of which has to do with the total package of communications. So Charlie, before I let you go, one key piece of advice. I have a big pitch tomorrow. How do I make the client the other party trust me what is the one thing i can do to increase the trustworthiness of how they perceive me wow well in general the biggest thing you can do is listen so if you're doing a big pitch tomorrow uh i would i would generally suggest 
keep the front part very short. The part where it's, here's I am, here's our firm, here's how we do, here's all our past clients, here's our methodologies. Keep that short, two or three slides and say, you know, there's more here, but I'll leave it aside for you to read later because you've already got the meeting. You don't need to pitch your track record. You're in the meeting. Now they want to know who are you and how can we work with you? And, uh, and then I would suggest you lead with something like, you know, we suspect that this, that, and the other, but there's one big question we have, and I'd love to, you know, not leave this room until we get a chance to talk about it. How do you think about this and get them talking? The more you have a chance to listen to them, the more they have a chance to observe you listening to them and noticing that you are paying attention, respecting their situations. You'll have plenty of chances to reveal your credibility in the way that you react to the particular issues they raise. Uh, so that, that's what I'd suggest. Keep the uh, qualifications short. Find some way to raise a really important question that requires their commentary in a dialogue and do a great job of listening to what they have to say. Charlie, thank you so much for that invaluable advice. It was lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. And thanks to you for listening. And we're going to be back with another new how-to very soon.